0: So if you have a holding company and the holding company is like randonash.com, right? Yeah. So Rand and Ash have a holding company and then we decide, hey, we want to make a few investments here. Let's build a product for e-commerce marketers on Amazon and let's build a product for social media marketers on Facebook. We're going to call this one Ash Facebook Optimizer and we're going to call this one, you know, Rand Amazon Optimizer. And so like there's a little bit of brand crossover. You might get the sense that they're similar or whatever, but they're not competing for the same brand equity. Gotcha. This is Ari Mizell from lessdoing.com, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on the Productive Insights Podcast. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the Internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.productiveinsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy.
1: I'm Ash Roy, the founder of ProductiveInsights.com, and this episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights Done For You podcast launch service, which positions you as a leading authority in your market and successfully turns listeners into high-value customers. Book a call with me on callashroy.com to discuss how we can get started. I've got a great episode in store for you today but unfortunately there were some issues with the sound quality because I forgot to close my office window and it was a windy day. So you'll hear a little bit of a breeze going through the microphone as I'm speaking and that does interfere with the sound a little bit but I think the content in the episode was too good not to share. So I hope that more than makes up for the compromised sound quality. Now, there are a few related episodes that we discuss in this podcast, and also other episodes that would be relevant if you enjoyed this content. And those episodes are episode number 36 with Yarrow Starak, where we talk about online trends. Episode 38, when I previously had today's guest on the show, where we talked about search engine optimization and content. Episode 41 with Eric Enger on Mobile Geddon. Episode number one with Neil Patel, where we touched a bit on content marketing. Episode number three with John Morrow, where we talked about blogging and how to write good quality content. Number 75 with Joe Polizzi on how to create content that meets your audience where they are on their journey. Episode 73 and 74 with Darren Rouse from ProBlogger. Talked a lot about content marketing and Facebook on that one. Episodes 107 and 108 with Sonia Simone, again on content marketing. Episode 116 with Brian Clark on how to humanize your content and why sales funnels are not enough. And then 123 and 124 with Pamela Wilson, all about content marketing. We will link to these in the show notes as well, so you don't have to remember all those episode numbers. I hope you get as much out of this episode as I did. Thanks for listening and let's get on with the show. Welcome everyone. Our guest for today uses the ludicrous title, The Wizard of Moz. He's the founder and former CEO of moz.com, board member at presentation software startup Haiku Deck, co-author of a pair of books on SEO, and co-founder of Inbound.org. He's an unsavable addict of all things content, search, and social on the web, from his multiple blogs, Twitter, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, and a shared Instagram account. His company, Moz, is now one of marketing's world's fastest-growing software companies. Moz's focus is on serving professional marketers with analytics and recommendations to improve their web traffic and customer acquisition through inbound channels such as SEO, social media content, content marketing, and more. I featured him previously on episode 38 of this Productive Insights podcast. I'm delighted to have him back. Welcome, Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moz.com.
0: Oh, thanks for having me, Ash. It's good to be here.
1: Great to have you, man. So Rand, first of all, thank you very much for referring some other awesome guests on the show. I've been very delighted to feature them, including Jessica Ma and Lisa Myers and quite a few others. So thank you very much for that. Now I noticed, Rand, you don't have your handlebar mustache, as you say in the US. So could you talk to us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, sure, Ash. So you are actually catching me. I only shaved this off two hours and forty minutes ago.
1: Wow. So this is a world's yeah. first.
0: That's right. That's right. World first. So I've been growing out my mustache for the last three years while Moz had been sort of investing in growth uh, through, you know, spending a lot of money. And I I have long been an advocate for the company being profitable. One of the ways I did that was by saying this was back in twenty thirteen. I said, I'm gonna grow my mustache out until we're profitable again. And finally we had three profitable months in a row, November, December, and January. And I expect and very much hope that 2017 will continue that way. So we'll put some cash in the bank. Yeah, get a little less risky with the business, but also, yeah, give ourselves you know, an infinite runway to grow and survive and, and take on new challenges.
1: Now, just to clarify for the listeners, this move to be technically unprofitable was actually a deliberate one.
0: Yeah, that's right. But for venture-backed businesses, this is a very common thing, right? You raise you know, tens of millions of dollars, and of course, you you go spend that money. You don't oh. just sit on it in the bank. If you didn't need it, why raise it, right? Why take the equity dilution? And so for Moz, yes, intentional move to spend that money. We invested in a bunch of things. Some things worked out really well. One of the ones that worked out really well was Moz Local, which has done quite well, grown pretty significantly from $0 uh, three years ago to... I think it did around five, a little more than 5 million in revenue last year. So nice. nicely grown business. And Moz Pro, which has also grown and improved dramatically, especially the last you know nine to 12 months, gotten much better. And then we made some investments that didn't work out, quite frankly. So we invested in a product called uh, Moz Content. Mm-hmm. We were investing in a product called Moz Social, which hadn't yet launched. And we ended up closing those two products last year when we did some layoffs last summer. And that's what basically took us back from, you know, spending money to being profitable again.
1: Right. And so can I ask, what were the key learnings from those two businesses not having worked
0: out? There were two big things for me. One is, it is, you know how a lot of people describe having children, like having one child is like having none, right? You can basically do all the things you used to do. It's a, you know, it's a little more challenging. You obviously have someone to take care of, but then having two is like having 10. Oh, man, I can speak from experience. Okay, so there you go. It is the same with products at a company. So when you have different products serving different audiences, requiring different marketing and sales efforts, requiring different engineering efforts and product efforts, design efforts, having one is like having none. Everything is just smooth. Your whole company is just associated with it. Having two makes you much more complex. And now it's much more challenging. Everything from branding, you know, Right. Everybody knew what Moz was because we only had one product. Yeah. When we launched Moz Local, that changed, you know, as we invested in other things that changed as well. And then, you know, just the complexity, the organizational management complexity Mm. also made for, yep, just a tremendous, tremendous lack of focus. Right. right? It's just way harder to get anything done in the company for any team Mm. because there's so much shared reliance on different resources and those kinds of things. Then... The second learning, I'd say, is pretty purely a marketing one. So rather than organizational complexity, this is just that: the more things you do, yeah, more diluted your brand and any individual's products marketing efforts becomes. Right. I'll give you an example. I go speak at a conference,
1: yeah.
0: in San Francisco, right? Let's say the what was that? The growth marketing conference that I did in December. Uh-huh. So great, lots of people are there. They're interested in SEO. They hear Rand speak. They know Moz offers SEO software. So if they have some interest there, they might say, oh, I really like that ran guy. I'm going to go check out that product. But if they hear me speak and they're like, I really liked him. Moz sounds interesting. But then Moz has like two products. Okay. Now it's a little bit of uh, cognitive work to figure out. I wonder which product is for me. And is it the right one? If Moz has four products, you might not even remember what you're supposed to associate Moz with.
1: Right. So it creates friction to purchase and it creates friction with branding.
0: Yes, exactly. Branding, brand memory, amplification, social sharing, memory associations, all those things suffer when you have multiple products. That's not to say some companies do a great job with right.
1: it. Right. Like well, I don't know if they do a great job but Google, I mean Google's got a zillion products. Yeah. So how do they do well,
0: it? Well, and I think I think Google had infinite universal adoption of Google search, right. right? Everybody knew what that was. And so when they launched Google this other thing, yeah. They could do a pretty easy job of like branding that. So they could say Google Chrome is a browser. Yeah. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Google's a web search company. Makes sense they would have a browser. All right, I understand that. Yeah. The cognitive dissonance and load is not nearly as challenging once you've achieved you know, near universal market penetration with one of your brands, right? as opposed to you're trying to build up what your brand is. I think it would have been much tougher if Google had had Google Maps and web hosting and Google Voice and Google, oh, the Chrome stick that you plug into your TV, right? If they had launched with all those products in the year 2000, Hmm. I think their search engine might not have taken off to nearly the degree, right? And so for a startup, I think that's really critical to have that like, deep focus before you start branching out.
1: And that's a really important lesson. And I'm really glad we've talked about this because I've seen a lot of businesses actually do that. But then you see a startup faces the other challenge too. And that is that they're trying to build a deep focus within one particular niche. You know, they're they're trying to go one inch wide and 10 miles deep, I get that. But that initial period where they're seeding and they're growing their brand Is very difficult. So it's always tempting to go and try and get cash flow from other sources.
0: Yes. Yes. Totally. I I mean, the temptation is constant, right? Like at Moz, one of the things we did is we said, hey you know, we're getting like, you know, I think at the time this was maybe one and a half million visitors to our website every month. And we knew that not all of them were professional SEOs. In fact, many of them were content marketers and social media marketers and email marketers and web developers. And so we went, gosh, could we make more products to serve this audience that we're already attracting, which sounds like a really smart strategy. Right. You go, hey, these customers are coming to our door. They know us. They like us. They trust our brand. They're returning to our site many times. They're learning about all this stuff already. We already know a bunch of things about this field. We know how to build software. Why don't we build more software to serve more of these purposes? And we just didn't know. We just didn't have that experience of, oh, my God, this is how incredibly hard it is. Right. to brand yourself in multiple ways. you know This is what it does to your growth trajectory on you know, even your core existing products when you go spend tons of time and energy trying to build out a bunch more different ones.
1: Right, right. So what's the answer? How does a startup solve that problem?
0: I think you have a few options, but I'll tell you how I will always do it for the future, which is I just want to build one thing.
1: Yeah.
0: And until I'm Google search with that one thing, and everybody in my market knows about me and has, you know, and I have that that ten mile wide, you know, to quote your saying there penetration, ten miles deep, one inch wide, right? Until I have that level of penetration, I don't even want to have a second thing. Wow, okay, I just don't want it at all. That being said, if you you know, sort of force me to come up with a way that that could be done, one of the things I think would be smart is to go with a different brand name, ok, right? So if you have a holding company and the holding company is like, RandandAnash.com, right? Yeah. So, Rand and Ash have a holding company. And then we decide, hey, we want to make a few investments here. Let's build a product for e commerce marketers on Amazon, and let's build a product for social media marketers on Facebook. We're going to call this one Ash Facebook Optimizer, and we're going to call this one, you know, Rand Amazon Optimizer. And so, like, there's a little bit of brand crossover. You might get the sense that they're similar or whatever, but they're not competing for the same brand equity. Gotcha. You still have the organizational complexity to deal with, right? So we'd, yeah. we'd have to figure out how to structure the company and yeah. sort that out.
1: Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say, Rand. And that is that, you know, when you build a second product, coming back to your two children and one child analogy, when you build <laughs> a second product, you've got to build a whole lot of functional departments or whatever the term is within yeah. your business. So you've got to do marketing for it. You've got to build fulfillment for it. You've got to build, you know, lead generation, customer acquisition, customer conversion—all that sort of stuff has to happen for that separate product. And now that you mention it, putting it under the same brand can be confusing. And actually, as you, as I'm speaking, I'm realizing Productive Insights has two offerings, really. There's one, there's stuff in the productivity space, which is mm-hmm. where I started my blog. And then there's stuff in the content marketing space, which is what I fell in love with. And, you know, the podcast launch services come off the back of that. People ask me, what do you do? I say, well, I do productivity and systems consulting as well as podcast launch services. And <laughs> I see their face, their eyes glaze over. So maybe I need to create a different brand name or different website or something that is for podcast launches and keep it separate.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too, right? Because when you have those conversations, I think it's very easy for someone to remember you and to build one association with you. But it's tough if you meet someone and you say, Oh, you know, great to meet you. I really enjoyed your talk. What do you do? Well, I'm actually a real estate agent. I'm a domain broker. And I'm actually an expert in model trains and airplanes. And so if you have an interest in any one of those three, you know, you should talk to me. Here's a business card with all three of those on there. You will never remember that person. You will not call them if you have a real estate issue. You will not call them for, oh, I had a broken model train. You will not call them for a domain broker. It just, it doesn't feel right, right? People are not, good memory systems in human beings are not is not good with recall recalling multi yeah multiple functions right we build one association it needs to be reinforced and that's what that is
1: especially with the massive information overload that we are subjected to at the moment. Fortunately, I've brought a few different domain names. So, you know, I've launched a course on productivity. I've called it premiumproductivity.com and I've got the domain name and I've Mm -hmm. got podcastsetup.com. So maybe I can build a different brand off the back of that. All of them redirect back into Productive Insights into the Mm -hmm. various landing pages. But I've sort of tried to sub-brand
0: them so there's folks who do it all on one site like i'm trying to think so atlassian has a number of different products that all do well but they do have different brand names but then they sort of functionally interplay with each other pretty darn well okay you know google is like that as well right they have multiple different products they all they all play with each other nicely but they have you know google can afford to have a two thousand person business for (laughs) google apps right you and i Probably not going to do that.
1: <laughs> Coming back then to the Atlassian example, which I think is an Australian company, actually.
0: Yep, that's right.
1: Is yeah. getting domains a good way to establish a brand name? Like getting a domain name for your particular product, like PodcastSetup.com, for example, and then have that redirect to a landing page on your website, so you're still getting the SEO benefits. Is that a good strategy?
0: Maybe, maybe. So let's see. For Atlassian, uh, let me see. So they have what is it, Confluence? Jira, status page, HipChat, right? And so mm. I, I think, if I remember correctly, all of those are on Atlassian.com slash whatever it is, right? Gotcha. So Atlassian.com slash HipChat, Atlassian.com slash Jira, and I think that's a pretty smart way to play it. To have those, if you've got to go the multiple brands route and you really want to be doing multiple things, then I think that's a a fine way to go about it. From an SEO perspective, what's great is as you build up the domain authority of atlassian.com you help the rankings of hipchat and exactly. jira and confluence right. right if you put them all on different domains it helps to keep the the branding segmentation different mm-hmm. but it does not you know it's going to hurt you from an seo perspective exactly you're splitting up all that authority.
1: Right, right. So you're leaving SEO on the table. But then again, if the key offerings are fairly different and would rank for different keywords, maybe there's not that much SEO benefit of having them all consolidated
0: onto the one side. There's still some, but you're right, it's, it's less so, right? So if Atlassian also had a, I don't know, a jewelry real, resale shop, you yeah. know, nothing to do with tech, nothing to do with software at all, yeah. Uh, it would hurt them less to have that on its own separate domain than to have Jira on its own separate domain, right? Because you're not building up the same, the authority in the same space, right? And Google has some element in their algorithms of topical authority, right? Like Atlassian is a topical authority around productivity software and team software. And so anything they produce that's in the team software universe sort of helps everything else uh, in that universe. But if they go into jewelry yeah, there might be some benefit from like you know the raw domain authority, just all the links that point to Atlassian and the fact that it's an important site, but it's not going to be nearly as topical.
1: Gotcha, okay, cool. Well, that's good to know. So it's still better off having it on the one side. They just wouldn't yeah. get as much value as if it was in the same keyword space as it were
0: right, right. so it's it's sort of like you know if you think about like the uh, The New York Times you know, they have a section on fashion and style. They have a section on politics. They have a section on technology. They have sections on travel, right? These are vastly different universes. Yeah. They're all in the general world of kind of content and reporting and news and information, but very disparate. And yet there's still benefit to keeping all of that on nytimes.com. Gotcha. Okay,
1: cool. So, Rand, there've been quite a few developments in the SEO space since we last spoke, particularly around Mobile Getin, which I also spoke to Eric Engo about. Since we last spoke, Mobile Geton has been fully rolled out. And I just wanted to know what are the biggest changes that have impacted the online world as you've seen it, and what do business owners need to know today in light of these recent changes?
0: Yeah, so I think I mean one of the funny things for sure was that Mobile Geton turned out to be a very small update. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it had a very, very limited impact. I'm sure, uh, you know, Eric probably talked about the statistics that they showed from that. Mm -hmm. That being said, I would say it's been a slow iterative update and if we were to compare today versus say three years ago, you would see a pretty dramatic difference in the percent of sites that are mobile friendly and that serve up a good mobile user experience. The percent of sites, particularly in mobile search results uh, that offer a subpar experience has gone way down. So I think you know, mobile friendliness has gone from a nice-to-have five years ago to a must-have two years ago to today. It's just table stakes. Right. You almost build your mobile site first.
1: Right, right. Right. And mobile consumption has now, if not exceeded, has equaled desktop consumption a few months ago. That's right. And if you aren't mobile responsive in terms of your website build, then you're going to rank lower in mobile search rankings than you would if you are mobile responsive.
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And let's be clear about that, though. You can be mobile-friendly without being mobile responsive. You could oh, okay. use adaptive design. Adaptive design is actually one of the preferred methodologies that many complex websites have, where they are essentially serving up a, a different set of content and links and design for a mobile device knowing that people on their mobile are functionally using the website in a different way versus responsive which is really just the content shapes to the screen size right and and those are kind of two different things
1: that's good i didn't know that so thank you for pointing that out yeah
0: yeah and google is okay with that in most cases they've announced that they're launching this mobile first index Mm -hmm. which is essentially like uh, your desktop rankings maybe based on the content they see from your mobile site rather than the other way around. Okay. And so, you know, that's kind of another nudge to say let's either go responsive design or let's make sure that adaptive design doesn't sacrifice very much right. in terms of content and links because that that could harm our desktop sites rankings. The third option is the separate mobile website. I really dislike this option for a bunch of reasons, you know, it's two different sites to maintain and you've mm. got this is like, you know, M m.nytimes.com oh, yes, versus nytimes.com, those. right? And uh, yeah I don't like them for a bunch of reasons, but Google is also okay with those. They will do a good job most of the time of ranking the right version on the right device. But why
1: would a business want to have that anyway? That doesn't make sense to me at all. Well,
0: two big reasons. One is the development time to turn the desktop website into responsive or adaptive is so overwhelming that they just say, hey, mobile developers go make me a mobile-friendly version, use the content that's already on the site. Gotcha. That's one reason. The second is when you are providing more dramatically different experiences and adaptive design is, let's say, out of reach for one reason or another. Maybe the content is you know, too challenging for what your current bandwidth allows or your technology team didn't do it or adaptive design wasn't around when you made your initial mobile site and so now you've been stuck with this world where you're maintaining both of them. It's one of those crappy things, actually. Most of the very early adopters to mobile-friendly design used a mobile site, a separate mobile site. And so now they're almost being punished for being early adopters because the tech sort of was lagging at the time that they invested in it. Yeah, that happens.
1: That sucks. And content, a good content strategy is still very important when it comes to to ranking in, in SEO. But when you create content, I think it's important to think in terms of the mobile user experience as well. Yeah?
0: Yeah. I mean, in a way, what's weird is mobile behavior has actually changed desktop behavior rather than the other way around. Okay. So because people are used to sort of the you know type something in or say something into my phone and i get a quick answer and the response is very fast google has actually made their desktop search results mimic their mobile search wow. result interface you know, they used to be very, pretty different. They're now almost exactly the same. And desktop mimicked mobile rather than the other way around. Right. That also means that very often what you have to do in both cases is provide a quick, easily digestible, high quality answer right at the top of your content that kind of quickly solves the user's problem. And then you can go more into depth if, you know, for those users who want to dig in more. But it's tough to do like kind of the old school SEO content strategy for many keywords, not all keywords, but for many keywords, it's tough to do the old school SEO thing where you basically have a whole heap of content with a, you know, a lengthy introduction and some storytelling more like journalism. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then, then you get into the, you know, solve the searchers problem. Now searchers are so used to getting their problem solved, you know, in the first Two or three hundred characters. Wow. Or at least being having that indication that their problems about to be solved in those first few hundred characters, the first few paragraphs, you know, the headline, the title, the visual at the top, that you have to do that right away.
1: So tell me then, Rand, how have things changed? Because I just recently recently interviewed Brian Clark from Copyblogger, and mm-hmm. we didn't get around to talking about headlines, but I want to have him back and talk about it at some point. Headlines used to be all about being intriguing and you know, drawing the reader, drawing their eyes down the blog post, if assuming it's written content and asking a question, but not necessarily giving away the answer in the opening part of the article. But what I'm hearing you saying now is that you've got to give them the answer and still manage to somehow interest them in reading the rest of the content.
0: That's right. Yeah. And the reason that this is so crucial is because if you look at a lot of Google search results today, you will see something called the featured snippet ranking in what we call position zero
1: okay so the
0: feature snippet in position zero means before you get to any of the 10 you know regular websites that rank in the results you will see this sort of snippet of content that google is extracting from the page to try and answer the query pretty quickly so right. for example let's say who insulted australia's prime minister <laughs> Really sorry about that, by the way. Uh, It's all good, man. No, it's not all good. Okay, so great. Here we go. Who insulted Australia's prime minister? I can't even believe this comes up with a featured snippet, but it does. And the featured snippet is... President Trump spoke with the leaders of five countries on Saturday, da, 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 and told Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull that this was his worst call by far before abruptly ending the hour-long call after 25 minutes. Okay, so this featured snippet is essentially answering the query for you before you ever need to click on any result.
1: Now, how does and Google so it, find that rent? How did Google know to go and pick that piece?
0: Yes, so this piece is structured in such a way that Google can use their sort of text parsing and natural language processing algorithms to determine hey this helps answer the searcher's query like this is what this person cares about yeah now i think what's important to note is this actually does a pretty good job this is from the week.com and it does a pretty good job of giving you like a taste of the content yep but leaving you wanting more right right because it's sort of like I don't get the full context there. All yeah. I know is that he had this terrible phone call. Yeah. I want to learn more. What, what what was said in that phone call, right? So they've driven me to want to click on that result, which is exactly what they should do,
1: right? right. They've
0: nailed the featured snippet. I wish I could say I prepped this in advance of our call, but I totally <laughs> didn't. just pulled it out of my ass. Um, cool. And uh, like most of Trump's phone calls, just pulled it right out of nothing. Um, and, and yeah, this concept, right, that we have to, Still have that, what you know, what Brian Clark and John Morrow talk about, about being able to attract the user yeah. and sort of pull them in while also answering their question such that you can get that result number zero above the fold in front of everyone.
1: Where does the snippet need to feature, Rand? Like, if I'm writing an article, because I'm now asking you with my writer's hat on, because, you know, yeah, headlines yeah. are the most important thing, but now it turns out snippets are also important. You've got to balance the whole lot, right, Rand? Because you've got to create intrigue. You've got to create an open loop, but at the same time, you've got to close the loop as well from what you're saying. So...
0: Yeah, so this snippet, the thing that you want Google to pick up to say, like, aha, that will be the answer. By the way, this is also what is used when Google replies to you with a voice search query. Okay. Right? So when, like, the Google voice assistant reads back an answer to you, if I ask my phone who insulted Australia's prime minister, they will read that text back to me. Wow. And then I might go, oh, that's interesting. Let me look at my phone and click for more. Yeah. Right? So voice search makes this even more important uh, to get in there. But from a writer's hat perspective, you want this to be in the first one to two paragraphs of the content, right? Right. So you're you're really trying to answer the searcher's query in a way that Google will pick up and use yeah. while still creating. It's almost like an advanced version of, a, of an ad snippet or of ad copy or a meta description, right? You're trying to answer, but also pull them in.
1: Okay. Well, that's very good to know. And that's an if nothing else, I mean, that in itself is a massive insight and a good action step for you listening or watching this episode, because if you write your content, which summarizes and solves the problem, but still leaves the audience wanting more, you're going to be further ahead, both in terms of Google type search results and voice search results, which I see only increasing with time as Siri on the iPhone, hopefully yep. gets a bit better And the Android, I think it's Cortana or something. No, that's Windows. You know, the various...
0: But all these assistants. Yeah, Yeah, Alexa, uh, Google Home, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, look, we'll probably talk a bit more about the SEO and all the other things that I wanted to discuss in a future episode. But just a few insights that I wanted to just wrap up with were that mobile get-in had a limited impact. It was more of an iterative update. But if you compare SEO five years ago to SEO today, it is dramatically different in terms of the way it treats mobile. So you want to make sure that your website is built with mobile in mind. If you're building a website, start with a mobile responsive or a mobile friendly website first and then go to desktop because Google search on desktop is now mimicking mobile rather than the other way around. You want to make sure you, your content solves a problem and that you have a snippet that is Google friendly that will feature towards the top of uh, the first two or 300 characters of your article, because that will be featured in Google search results, and Google looks for that. You still want to create compelling headlines, but you want to answer the question and then leave the audience wanting more information at the end of having read that snippet. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you'd like to add, Rand?
0: Well, one thing I think that has changed in the last few years that is also important and probably worth considering is that Google is now... Almost certainly using some forms of engagement in their ranking. What I mean by engagement is, let's say you rank well for something, you rank in position number one, but lots of people who come to that search result, click on your result. They see something and it doesn't doesn't work for them. They click the back button quickly and they choose a different result. Google calls that pogo sticking. And if they see more of that pogo sticking on your site or your page than on other results in the search results even if you have more links, more content, better keyword targeting, more powerful domain, every other signal, you will fall in the rankings and the people who get high engagement where nobody bounces back and everybody's like engaged on that content, that will rise in the rankings. Which makes sense, right? Yeah. Google is clearly saying you are satisfying searchers, you are not satisfying searchers. Right. And they want to rank content that satisfies searchers. So this is you know a new golden rule of SEO. It's not even new, right? It's an old golden rule of SEO that now is vastly reinforced by the strength of Google's algorithm around it, and that is serve searchers' queries, right? right? Like, do a great job of serving the searcher's needs. If you don't, you can expect to fall in the rankings. And if you are being outclassed by somebody else on that vector, even if you're doing a good job, somebody else popped into the top 10 and they're doing a better job, they might claim that top spot from you.
1: Gotcha. Well, that is really good to know because it comes back to our previous conversation where we talked about content that's shared more is content that is voted. A share is considered by Google to be like a vote. And so the more engaging it is, the more likely they are to share it. And so it's not just about backlinks. It's not just about creating catchy headlines. At the end of the day, you've got to solve your prospects problem. And that's right. That is the key. You need to learn to solve the problem and to solve the problem, you need to understand your audience. You really need to understand your audience. So that's the biggest takeaway from this episode. Understand your readers, understand your listeners and solve their problem and you'll be fine.
0: Empathy is a marketer's greatest weapon.
1: Great. I think that's a perfect thing to end on, Rand. Thank you so much for being on the show. And man, I can't wait to have you back again.
0: My pleasure, Ash. All right. Look forward to it, man. Take care of yourself. Take care, buddy for listening to the productive insights podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on productiveinsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today?